right. Today, my guest is Nicholas Tillmans. He is the founder and the CEO of Anagenics, where they are evolving new small molecule medicines by combining ultra-high throughput biochemistry and machine learning. Nicholas, welcome to CC Life Science. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So as I mentioned today, this is what I want to talk about is the use of machine learning in drug development based on DNA encoded libraries. This is all people listening to this podcast know strictly based on my curiosity about artificial intelligence and machine learning all the way through the life sciences from what we're talking about today to where the doctor is talking to a patient in a clinic. So first of all, let's, uh, in terms of discovery, talk about the big picture problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, so we there's a never-ending need for molecules that, that help patients for, for medicine. And that is never, I don't think that'll ever stop, but it gets harder and harder as we get better at it. There's a problem in drug discovery the central challenge in finding those new medicines is there's there's a bunch of different ways you can address a, a disease, right? Um, so that's, maybe it's good to start at the at the front. Yeah. If I have a if I have a patient and this patient has some sort of illness, one of the things that I may not know I may not have any idea why that patient is sick. So it, it could be so there, there's certain diseases like ALS like um, Alzheimer's famously, where we don't really have a strong understanding of the illness and what's causing it to do what it's doing. Um, so step one in any disease, now there's, there's others where we do know. So for example, I would say in, in various forms of cancer, we're very clear, oh, this gene went wrong, and therefore if we fix it, that should have an effect on the cancer. So other diseases are a little bit, cystic fibrosis is another really clear example. Um, there's a inflammation, so, so the, the, the biggest drug in the world right now is Shumira, and that's, a, that's an inflammation drug, and it targets a particular protein. So in some cases, we have a clear understanding of this protein over here, this, this what we call a target, this target matters for the disease, and if we interfere with it in some ways, we should have a disease impact. So that's... You start with not really knowing, and then if you have something that you actually understand, that's the next step. So that's all called target discovery and target ID. After that, you need to actually do it, right? Now I have this, I have my objective in mind, but what am I going to do to actually interfere with this protein? And now you've got a couple different things you could do. You could go the, the, the newer routes. So the newer routes out there are antibody-based drugs. So that's, the, the, that's been around for a while maybe 20, 25 years in terms of its, its current incarnation. Um, but those kinds of drugs are typically a little bit more boutique. They are a little bit harder to get access to. Um, what an antibody drug is, is it's a, it's a drug that looks like a human antibody. It is actually a human antibody that has been designed and engineered to bind to this target, this protein of interest, to interfere with it in some way. And, and we know that that works because our human cells, right, do that all the time. We make antibodies all the time. Those antibodies interfere with viruses, most famously recently, and therefore can prevent the virus from doing certain things, right? So that's, that's and the, the principle of antibodies is just do that, but do it artificially now that I know, oh, this protein does that. 
Um, the downsides are those drugs tend to be pretty expensive. They're expensive to build. They're expensive to distribute. They tend to be very expensive for patients. And they are not going to be able to access a bunch of targets that are very important. So maybe they've had that. Um, if you are a cancer patient, if you are an arthritis or inflammation patient, you might have had an antibody drug. But the vast majority of, of people haven't. Most times when you've taken a medicine, you've taken a pill. And that is an entirely different class. That is called small molecule drugs. They're the drugs that everybody takes. They can be delivered in a, in a pill to you at the pharmacy. You don't need to inject yourself. You don't need to keep it in the refrigerator for the most part. All sorts of great advantages here. Um, the, the downside is that they're also pretty hard to, not to say that antibodies are particularly easy, but the downside is that small molecule drugs are very difficult to find, new ones especially. Um, so, and we've, we've seen this again play out in the pandemic. In the pandemic, we had antibody drugs that came on early. They were pretty expensive. You had to go to a special center to get an infusion of these antibodies. And then Pfizer, at the beginning of the year, got approval for Paxlovid, a small molecule inhibitor for COVID. And immediately, everybody is taking the pill instead of the injection. That's the key thing that, that so, so small molecules are almost always better in a similar application to a antibody. So to find new small molecules, you need to do two things. I have, remember, I need to know what I'm shooting for, typically. It's not always true, but let's keep it simple. So if I know which target I try to interfere with, I now need to find a small molecule that will interfere with it. It's got to go to the right place, has to stay there long enough, and it has to not do anything we don't want it to do. And that's, that's called lead optimization, broadly speaking. So we, we saw both hit ID and optimization to get drugs to the clinic faster for more patients. The problems that we tend to focus on within this hit ID, so, so some of these targets are known for a while but still don't have compounds. So that's, that's solving, hit ID helps us there. But mostly what we were focusing on is trying to optimize those compounds more effectively. And we think in the particular, in, in one particular area, we'll have more luck and that's around selectivity. One of the, tr one of the really big advantages to an antibody-based drug is an antibody drug is very specific. They tend to hit only the thing they're intending to hit. Small molecules tend to be harder to have that sort of, that, that sort of specificity. And so we believe that our technology is gonna give us an edge at finding more highly specific compounds than, than others. And that's, that's one of the places we're maintaining focus. The other area that we, we solve is all the other parts of the lead optimization process around pharmacology primarily. Those kinds of things, we feel that our machine learning is going to give us an edge because the machine learning is really going to understand what causes our compounds to interact with our targets. And as it understands that, it can predict new compounds that would also interact with high reliability. If I have a model, if I have some sort of machine learning model that can, can go out and identify a thousand different compounds that are going to interact with the target, I am operating from a standpoint of abundance. I can say, oh, I'm just going to pick the hundred ones that, I, that all of my other algorithms tell me are going to be good for toxicity, going to be good for permeability. And a lot of those are, are those fully acknowledging that a lot of those algorithms and models aren't perfect. They're not the best, but because I have so many compounds that I can propose, I am able to be picky and say, all right, 
I'm okay with a bunch of times being wrong because I have so much I can choose from. So that's, we're trying to change small molecule drug discovery to a standpoint of abundance rather than a standpoint of, oh my God, I've got to be very careful which molecules I pick. Yeah, I like that. So, and I understand that. I mean, the practical application of that is it takes a, if you pick from a few and you could do a lot of work to find out still wasn't the right one. Right. Um, and then just thinking, you know, as chemistry wise, like the trade off between large antibodies, very specific, complicated, and small molecules, which look almost the same to lots of different targets, right? They say, oh, that's a yeah. thing. I'm going to stick to that, right? Yeah. But that's not right. So, somewhere in the middle, trying to add just enough complexity to add specificity. Yeah, and not tank your oral bioavailability. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So um, it sounds like, I mean, this approach is based on data generation as opposed to refining models. And, and on this podcast, we haven't talked a lot about the details yeah. of how machine learning models are developed. I have a rough understanding of neural networks. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you're using. It is. But, um, talk about that and is their need for or room for improvement in the models. It sounds like you sort of just said that a minute ago. Like they're not all perfect. Yeah. There's a hundred percent. There's, there's, I, I think that there are improvements available in both halves of that equation. So you can have a, you can develop better algorithms, which we do. We care a lot about that. Um, but I don't think that without examining the data side of the equation that you're going to do a good job. So if we look at what machine learning has, has when we, we go on Twitter and the news and things like that, when you look at the kinds of machine learning problems that those are treating, the data sets involved are enormous. So literally, the, the DALI, this, this kind of image generating thing that's been making all of the news relatively recently, DALI was trained on a massive portion of the whole internet. Like any image that has been captioned, that, that has the image itself and then the caption under it that says what it is, that's the training set. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of photos it's very rare that you have data sets that are of that size in biology and biochemistry. Um, that's why I think a lot of machine learning efforts have been a little bit disappointing. Now, what we've done therefore at Anagenics is to really think about how do we generate larger data sets? That's what DNA encoded libraries bias. We can generate billions of data points rather than in the best case scenario, millions, and usually tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. If you look at most companies, they're generating tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of data points in their in their high throughput screens as their first pass. So that's that's not enough to get the kind of traction that these advanced neural nets. We know that these advanced machine learning models can take advantage of more data, but we don't typically have the data set size in in, in biotech. And so anagenics is about building those kinds of data sets. But it also means that there's you can now ask new questions of how you should design your model. I have more data, so maybe I can change the architecture of the model to suit and fit the kind of data that's in there better. Um, 
I think that that's so that's one of the key places where we're very different than most. We have a very strong machine learning team and a very strong biochemistry team. And so they can both talk to one another and say, this is the kind of data we're getting. This is the kind of data we want. This is the kind of data we couldn't have. Like all of that as a as a joint effort means that we can get better architectures and better data together. Um, so one thing I would say about machine learning is almost everything that we've talked about in machine learning has been some form of supervised learning. So there's two classes of machine learning. There's unsupervised and supervised learning. If you look at DALI, so this, this visual image uh, thing that, that's on the internet, that's a, still a supervised learning problem. It's called a self-supervised learning. We, like the data set itself as has all of the information that you need and the label is very clear. So what does supervised learning mean? I've got a label for a data point. So this is true, false is the label and the data point is all the parameters, you know, this, this, there's a lot of green in the image, there's a lot of, this is a simple version of it. Um, so what, what you need to, to when, when you, if you've got supervised examples, the, the, the model is trying to fit from the, the points, it's trying to understand and say, okay, can I predict the label properly? Um, the, that means that you need to have high quality labels. And that's, that's great. That's extremely important. What's underappreciated, though, is that a lot of times that data is a little bit off. And I'll give a couple of examples. Um, one example that is the easiest to understand is if you train a model on on detecting whether something, a picture contains a cow or contains a camel. This is an experiment that was run and it did pretty well. It could fix, you know, recognizing a cow versus a camel worked really great. And then somebody said, all right, well, let's put a cow in the desert. And then it called it a camel. So what it had learned, what the model had learned is sand versus grass, right? Lots of sand versus, but that works really well if you have no images of a cow in, in, on sand. And so that's, that's the kind of thing that machine learning does. It tends to, it will, it will give you an answer, but you don't necessarily know what the question you were asking was. And that's why controlling how you generated those data sets where you have the data points and the labels, understanding the metadata, all of the process surrounding that data generating process is so important because it allows you to do these kinds of controls and say, okay, hey model, don't pay attention to this thing over here. Pay attention over here. If you don't have all the data, you can't really do that. And that's, again, that's why Anagenics, Anagenics we've built this, this whole data generating process in-house and not relied on external providers. First of all, I love that. So that sort of is an example of a question I've had since I started this podcast. Is like, how do you know how the machine decided, you know, grass versus sand like and i don't know if you have an answer to this but i've been talking to people who you know talk about blockchain keeping a record of decisions in artificial intelligence and i'm wondering yeah you're shaking your head that's not the kind of thing it's not going to say hey we decided because it was grass versus sand but blockchain isn't going to solve any of this yeah so but it does it, it does illustrate that you know, if you don't know what your model is deciding on, there's a case where it becomes completely wrong. So correct. So I guess the reason you don't 
the short answer to your question, how do you know what the mo- how the model made its decision? The short answer is you do not. And there's really not a clear mathematical way on most models for you to really identify that. So that is an active area of research within machine learning today, where these neural nets behave a lot like a black box. And we don't really know how they came to the decisions they made. So how can we do what's called causal inference within these neural nets? There are kinds of models in in more traditional statistical learning. So things like a linear regression, these are used a lot in economics. When you see a paper that said there was, you know, this this factor, the sociological factors was responsible for 10% of why people, you know, had a better outcome at school or whatever. Like that's, that is done by fitting a model to the data. And those models are designed to have a little bit more explanatory power. Often it's misused, but, but more so than neural nets. Neural nets really don't have that, that logic. Um, so it's important that when you show it the data, you know how you're asking the question and you're phrasing the question in a way that is very clear what you're trying to answer. There's a bunch of different ways to do that, but it's, it's tricky. That's part of the art here. Yeah. So tell me if I'm wrong about this. For the people who understand neural networks to the same minimal level that I do, there's a black box and there's a bunch of knobs being twiddled inside to get to the right answer. But there is no information about what knobs were turned, how far, what they did between the input and the output. Is that fair? You could. I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this in a visual way. What a neural network is, is a. I'm going to describe a slightly different model as a start. And then explain how neural nets are different. So let's talk about decision trees. This is something that is very intuitive for us to understand. Like, I have a data point. Is the, you know, let's talk about fruit. All right. Color. Is it red? Is it blue? That's one, one thing we can have, right? Is it, is it big? Is it small? Is it round? Is it long? So the, these are kind of parameters that we could say, very s- simple binary pa- parameters. And so I can construct a decision tree that says, okay, I have this new data point and I can say, if it's red, go this way. If it's blue, go that way. If it's so, and, and at the end, at the very end, there's going to be a prediction. This is a banana, this is a blueberry, this is a strawberry, right? Like, and and that, so that's a very intuitive way. And you can then examine, if I use a decision tree model, I can then go back and say, all right, how... How did I make those decisions back and forth? Now, a neural net in a visual way kind of looks a little bit like a decision tree, but is much, much larger. You have many, many more nodes and many, many more branches. And why is that important? It's because maybe the relationship is very complicated. Instead of a binary relationship that says, oh, if it's red, go this way. If it's blue, go that way. Really, there's an interaction. It says, like, if it's red and there's a little bit of an oblong shape. Well, then maybe you should be this, right? Maybe it's an unripe papaya. Who knows? Like, so you, you kind of, that's what the neural net's trying to capture, these relationships between all of these features. The, the model I just described is, in a decision tree is kind of a linear relationship between the features and the output. I'm trying, the neural net is able to learn much more complicated functions. But that means that if you looked at it, if we had the same classifier, now we're able to go back and look at all of the internal nodes within the neural network, 
they wouldn't necessarily correspond to anything. It could be like, take a little bit of red, a little bit of blue, a little bit of, of oblong, a little bit of this. Okay, go this way, right? Or, 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 and you would have no idea why, but it would be right very often. So that's yeah. why it's hard to explain. And, and, but, it's the, but it works. It works a whole lot better than others. Yeah. If you have enough data, if you have small data, if you have too little data, the, the decision tree is actually often more reliable. It's only when you have very large data sets that these neural nets really make sense. Yeah. All right. Can we shift gears to chemistry? Sure. Yeah. So let me take a shot at it. And I don't know if this is exactly how you do it, but what I know about um, DNA encoded libraries, how they're made, because it took me, a, I had to see it, print it out for me. Yep. But... You start with some subsets, we'll call them building blocks of small molecules, amino groups, carboxyl groups, hydrocarbon chains, I don't know what. The first component has a DNA tag on it. When you add another component, a, a, a different tag that identifies component number two is added to the DNA chain. Is that right? Yeah. And so on. So every time you add a component, you're building up a DNA sequence. And so, and then you're going to take that whole mix, find out what binds to your target, wash away the crap, and sequence the DNA to see what the components were and in what sequence they were added to make the molecule that binds to the target. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Which, which is pretty cool. That's correct. My yeah. next question is, of course, it uh. doesn't, there could be many different organizations, I imagine. Mike, I have a chemistry degree, but I never brag about it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm a biologist. The components that were or added in a certain order, there's a mix of those, of what they could come out to be. Yep. And then you have to somehow figure out which of those is the one that works, right? Do you have an answer for how that happens? Yeah. How do you how do you figure well, out what's the one that's binding? Um, so that's a that's a sophisticated question. Let me just to recap. Essentially, what DNA encoded libraries solve is that you've got a bunch of chemical Legos and you can assemble them in any order you want. And we then use the DNA to understand what order we assembled them in. Why do we need to bother with that? Well, when you have a compound in a tube, it's extremely difficult to, I can't just take a microscope and see what the compound is. That would make right. life very easy. Um, so I need to have some sort of way of identifying it. The DNA is the identifier. That DNA, however, as you mentioned, only tells you the order in which you thought you added the building blocks to one another. So chemistry never goes to 100% you're going to for sure have a mixture. We think about this a lot. We think about how to bring machine learning to bear to understand what that mixture looks like. That's something that we've worked on, again, very thoroughly. Um, but so that's that's a key thing that we, we do. I think the way you do it is you have to understand upfront. You remember when I was telling you about the library, the, the data generating process? I consider what is the likelihood that two things could have reacted as part of that metadata, part of that information mm -hmm. that tells me how I generate my data set. So I want to show that to the model in some form. 
and have the model learn the relationship between different compounds that may have been made. We think about, that's a very important part of what we do, and we do it on the machine learning side, but we do it on the machine learning side by anchoring ourselves in data that we gathered during the process of data generation. Okay. And you have made clear to me a challenge that I didn't even think about. So I was only thinking about, for example, 100% reaction completion. We add in this order, mm -hmm. there's still a mix of what they could be, and we get a DNA oh, yeah. sequence. But you could get a molecule that binds that has a DNA sequence for which one of the components never showed up because adding the DNA and adding the component are both uncertain. Right. The DNA is less uncertain. So the DNA, okay. you can pretty, pretty goddamn sure that it was added. The component, okay. you're less sure. Fair um, but the, the, yeah. So let's take the simple case of that. Let's assume everything is perfect. Now you, the, the way I would classify traditional methods of drug discovery is you're looking for a needle in a haystack by asking every individual piece of straw, are you a needle one at a time? That's the traditional way. The way that we do it is we take the whole haystack and we pass it over a magnet to see what sticks and then understand what comes out. Now, if you can then further that analogy, that magnet for us is a little is a magnetic bead that has a protein, a target that is attached to it, and we can wash away the stuff that doesn't stick. But stuff is going to stick randomly. You're going to have some fraction of stuff that just gets stuck. You can think about the in the analogy with the haystack, right? Some stuff gets on top of the magnet. It just kind of, it's there, but it's not because it sticks to the magnet for real. Um, the way, there's a bunch of ways you, you solve this. You wash differently. You do a bunch of quality control steps. This I won't go too far into the details, of this, but trust me that there are ways to mitigate that noise issue. And we've worked very hard to do so better than anybody else. Um, the next thing that you do is you sequence, right? So now I've got all the things that's stuck and I've got the DNA. I go to a sequencer. I say, oh, sequence all my piece of DNA. So what I then get is I get the DNA and a number of times I saw that single sequence. And the number of times I saw that sequence correlates or should correlate, at least in theory, with the amount of, of, of the, the level of affinity for that compound, how tightly it's stuck to the target of interest. That is true. It is also false. Most people do not actually find a good correlation between the number of counts and how tightly the compound binds. That's something that, again, we work on very hard because the theory there should be one thing and the practice of DNA encoded libraries has been different. And that's because there's a lot of source of noise. One of the things I just mentioned is maybe the compound wasn't made the way you thought it was. And an easy thought experiment is if I have two compounds, one was made in 100% yield, right? But it's a, a micromolar binder. The other was made in 10% yield, but it is a 100 nanomolar binder, so it's tenfold stronger. Those two will likely have the same number of counts, but yep. one is better than the other. So you have to understand that chemistry before you can extrapolate out any sort of affinity. Got it. And then... Are you analyzing the small molecule side after you wash sequence the DNA and wash out like some mass spec or anything like that? You to do not what's do in that. There? Or you don't do it at the core library. It's too dilute. So uh, when when you're doing the raw DNA encoded library, you do the washes 
you PCR amplify the DNA, at which point there is no compound present at all, and then you throw it on a sequencer. Sequencer tells you the sequence, you then back calculate, oh, that sequence should have been this structure, and as we discussed, could be a mixture. From there, you then follow it up. And that's, that's, you could do that a bunch of different ways. You could go out and, and remake some of the compounds that are at the top of the list. That's a traditional way. In our case, you could train a model, and then the model goes out and buys some compounds from enamine or someplace else. You test those, right? So at that level, you can that then bring to bear your mass back and say, oh, did I make the compound? How did it go? We yeah. also use a, a, a technology called Affinity Selected Mass Spectrometry, where we recapitulate the chemistry that happened on the DNA and then use that to understand what mixture of compounds could have made it through that selection process. That's on a mass spec. But you, you do the mass spec afterwards, not in the primary Dell screen. Makes total sense. All right. I have one more question. If there isn't anything else that I have massively missed that we should be talking about. And, yes. and in our previous conversation, because I thought this was just an interesting challenge as a management problem. Now we're going to the people. We started with <laughs> machine learning, went to biochemistry. Now we're going to the people about how, you know, bench scientists are working at a different <laughs> pace than your comp computational scientists and yeah. how you manage that balance of, you know, the computational people saying, oh, we have a gazillion ideas for you. And the bench guys saying, that's a few months, <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. Uh, the, the mixture between, I think that, so in the ideal case, you should be able to translate very directly. I think what's kind of underlying some of these conflicts is that a computational person lives in a world that is very deterministic. It is a world that is super deterministic and it is a world that has a, a rapid turnaround. It takes me relatively little time to test whether my code worked, at least on a basic level. And that's not true for any lab experiment. Right. So why is, and, and it's messy. So I think bridging that gap, what we do is we try to have people work in the lab. So we'll have people come, computational people sit side by side with one of our bench scientists and watch how it happens. I want them to know that every data point that they use was, the, was bled for, like it was a real <laughs> effort to get that data point. And then it means that when you come back and you turn around and you say, here are my predictions or whatever, that you understand what you're asking, right? And, and what, how, how that should work. But that's not only that, you should understand when you're making the initial prediction, when you, before you make the prediction, when you're training your model, when you're thinking about all of that data, you should have a sense for uncertainty. You should have a sense for the fact that this is a human that moved liquid. So maybe even sometimes a robot, but often a human that moves a liquid from one tube to another, there's going to be variation. There's going to be things that work one time and not quite as well the second time. And you have to under, be, be ready to deal with that in, the, in your in computational people. And computational people will say, well, why can't you solve this? Like, why don't you know that? Like, why isn't and the answer is because the experiment's really hard to do. And the only way I can communicate that is to have people sit together, process that data, we create a culture of learning from one another. We create a culture of service to one another. The, the, the lab team 
works with, and I, I hesitate to say for, but works as a, a client and a customer of the computational team. And and a, 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 a provider, kind of a, a, a not, that's not, I'm not really using the, the right word, a provider and a customer. And ditto with the computational team. We are They are both equal. Nobody works for anybody else, but everybody works for everybody else at the same time, right? Yeah. I love that. I just think that, I mean, that's a lesson regardless of what you're doing in life science or biotech. There's a lesson there for everybody. And I hope the computational people are cheering, but I know the chemists are. <laughs> Uh, the computational people do too. Like the, we screen for that in hiring. We we screen one of our evaluations when we screen is can this computational person explain some of what they're doing to the biochemist and the biologist, and vice versa. Can the biologist explain what they're doing to the computational folks? That is a thing we hire for. Brilliant. Well, Nicholas Tillmans, this has been a fantastic education for me. Um, I will certainly put a link to Anagenics in the show notes and your LinkedIn as well, if that's all right. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Chris. You have a great rest of your day. All right, you too. 